This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. This episode is also supported by Enscape, empowering your design workflow by turning your BIM model into an immersive 3D experience. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. And today I'm talking with Shane Berger, who is the Principal and Director of Technical Innovation at Woods Bagot. Shane is an internationally recognized leader in the advanced use of technology in design and experience for the built environment. At Woods Bagot, he directs a vision centered on technical innovation and leads a global team dedicated to researching, developing, and applying new models of design and delivery to projects. He's lectured widely on a range of topics including design computation, BIM, digital fabrication, building performance, VR, AR, smart buildings, and digital culture and experience. He's also a proud father, lapsed jazz musician, and one of the many cyclists who commute to work in New York City every day, or as you'll find out in this episode, why he chooses to walk to work as often as he can. Additionally, we talk about the users of technology in an international architecture firm and what they need, how cross-pollination happens at Woods Bagot, how Shane is a huge fan of note-taking, and so much more. So without further ado, I bring you Shane Berger. saying that you do work for a large company and like what you're talking about is obviously use it or lose it kind of pto at the end of the year only a certain amount usually rolls over and if you don't use it it's gone and that is kind of unfortunate but it happens to a lot of people in architecture because they're like oh i'll take it i'll take it i'll take it and then december shows up and it's heads down month because we got to do all the things that have to be done to get the permit sets, you know, or to get things in before the the code cycle changes, for instance. So this is kind of the life of an architect at the end of the year. It sneaks up on you and then all of a sudden you can't go anywhere. Yeah. And unfortunately for me, prior to working for Woods Bagot, I was at a, uh, at uh, Grimshaw Architects and we were doing some amazing competition work, but we had a competition that was overseas and they don't have the same holidays they don't, we do. They don't have the same holidays. <laughs> right. So our original deadline, I think, was December 27th of was course, when yeah. the, the competition set was due. And then it got pushed to, I think, the first or second week in January, which meant you were still working over the holidays. There's more time. We can work more. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. And it happened to correspond with one of those years, which we don't get these in New York very often, where we have blizzards. And I remembered going to the office on, I think it was December 27th or 28th, climbing over six foot snowdrifts to get into the front door to work all day. Back in the day. This is a great story, Shane. Uh, that's just that's just how it happened, right? When I was a and, kid, we had to climb oh, snowbanks right? to get into the office. <laughs> Backwards with no shoes on. Uh, and uh but you know it but the thing is these things still happen, right? Uh, the there's still requests for outsized de- demands on people's time. And I think what I've been really appreciating more, and this is something that's come up in our own business a lot over the last last number of months, 
And we even held, we, we have this yearly festival called the Ford Festival. And previous years, we've had a lot of guest speakers. This year, uh, we have Patrice Gordon. She spoke a lot about concept of reverse mentoring and how how we can really communicate and learn from each other as a, as a culture, as a community in the company. So the entire focus of the week was on, in a way, building better community through the practice and building better understanding of, of our peers. What are the things that we need to do to operationally and kind of fundamentally change our business? There's some amazing conversations that were held during the week. And one of the big things I really appreciate that came up multiple times, and this comes from I give all the credit to her, towards younger generations than me. So I, I'm 45. I don't consider myself to be in the older generation, but I am in a way. So I'm in the in a leadership position. I do have the gray hair. Like if people were just listening to this on podcast, they can't see the glistening gray hair, gray hair on the side from the light. Anyway, I really appreciate the conversations about the importance of investing proper time in mental health in the the need for people to take proper breaks. I mean, the, the, so I've been reading a whole lot about Mihai Chisek Mihai's work on flow and flow states and creativity and the importance of quote unquote downtime to the creative mind, to the productive mind. And, and it's not wasted time. It's probably the single most important thing you can do for you, for yourself from a creative capacity and a productive capacity is to take that time off with no intention. Just let stuff happen through your brain. Let those connections, you know, fire up. And it's been amazing to hear these conversations through our forward festival from our staff and for our, our leadership in the company to listen and to engage and to really start working with people about what is a healthy work environment for an architecture firm. Because I started like all of us did in going through architecture school, pulling all-nighters, doing all the crazy things that people did, sleeping on the floor or sleeping bag underneath my desk um, to get stuff done. And and then that sort of attitude continued into practice for such a long time. And all these all this work that we do in technology to automate and speed up the efficiencies didn't get returned to us in time off. To invest in our mental health, our own, our brains, right? The promise of computing, yeah, it just just meant actually work more, right? <laughs> right, right. And I, so this is where I think a lot of my reading and thinking over this last year has been about thinking of re- returning to some of the original ideas around computers as a tool for thought. And and that, I mean, that sort of concept that goes back to the to the sixties and such with some of the early thinking about what the role of computers are supposed to be. But then you start looking at it into the kind of modern ideas around things like second brain, where people use either AIs or kind of smart graph network-based note-taking systems. I use one called Rome. It's where I do all my thinking and note-taking and, and, and idea generation and start using those as a way to extend our creativity, extend our ideas in our, our brain, not just to automate things, but to actually take advantage of what they're good for to augment how we think through and how we work through our, our ideas. And I've been really thinking a lot more about the importance of that as a priority over mere automation. Automation can be beneficial if, you, if you're doing commodity-driven tasks, repetitive things that you shouldn't have to spend your time on. But if you then just go and re- replace those with more repetitive tasks that are of lower value, uh, what are you doing? I'm much more interested in the fruitful avenues that come through augmented design as a as this kind of kind of second brain approach and how people can take advantage of that to really extend themselves creatively i think you're a fan of gordon brander's work 
he's working yes. on the subconscious, yeah. this, this note-taking app idea of, you know, and, and really thinking about it in these kinds of terms, which is what he had an interesting post the other day. I've subscribed to his newsletter and it was about the photos app being like one of the best. And, and he was like, I, I've never really thought about it this way, but it was this photos app is it's, it's your phone is more than a camera. It's a, it's a way to capture ideas, thoughts, memories. Everybody uses it for things never that you would have never thought about using a camera before, especially in the film days when you only had a limited number of captures that you could get onto a roll of film. So they became precious and now the it's free, right? And so with even the, the latest kind of iOS developments when with OCR built into the images and being able to copy and paste that right out of an image, you no longer even... You, you don't need to do that until you need to do that. So you, you don't need to take a picture, OCR it, pull that text out and store it somewhere else. It's just in the image now. I think that kind of these, what I like about his writing is that he's staying current on technology and applying it to things we've always done in, quote, the way we've always done it and hel- helping us rethink our relationship with the second brain kind of idea and thinking about it from different perspectives to kind of and I I I like reading his newsletter and then doing exactly what you just said which was letting my subconscious work on that <laughs> later and and then connections are made when you least expect them and and I, I I appreciate that about it and I think like that's why I like reading his newsletter because it always makes me think about things a little bit differently especially when he's just trying to reinvent a note app or or create a notes app that that works in the way he's kind of thinking it's it's the the space at which people are exploring right now. So like Gordon and others in that sort of field right now, the ideas that are coming out, and this is stuff, again, that's existed for 40, 50, 60 years. And I feel like we're finally getting to a point where there's the technology able to provide these opportunities. I'm really enjoying reading this sort of stuff and then trying to start thinking about how does that in a parallel way come over to design environments? What What are the things, what are the, what are the existing tools out there? What are the the models or the kind of paradigms that we have within design practices or within, sorry, design technology that point that direction? And I'm having trouble finding a lot. I mean, the basis of how people work with a lot of the computation-based tools is, is always nice. I mean, the concept of, a, of building a tool through a kind of a, a graph definition as a representative of both creation of design space, how it is you want to work, but also the constraints in how you, the sort of constraints you want to apply in your own thinking um, and the external constraints that come in. I find that quite fascinating. Um, often it's just a quick means to an end. But when you start really getting into how some people are thinking through the development of their kind of computational graphs, you do see it as a window into their thinking process. And I do think that there's some, there's a lot of, healthy work going on there, but I don't see it as what I'm finding in some of these other tools. Like the, the, the photo app is a re- really good example, right? I, of course I have a photograph of my, my COVID vaccination in there. I have my daughter's COVID vaccination in there. So it becomes an identification tool, a verification tool, because I have an album with that information. And in. I absolutely have been using the OCR, take picture of something, come back later, extract the text out of it. So then it becomes a method of converting media from one format to another to pull information out of something. 
I'm probably not even using it near as much as I could in terms of like organizing by, you know, topic, not even organizing because it's doing a lot of it for me, uh, organizing by topics and threads and finding information through it. But what I am, what I'm really enjoying are the, the kind of quick tools that enable me to get something down really fast and have it connected into the flow of my rest of my thinking. So this is why the note-taking apps are really good places for that is because I'll just pull out my phone, open up Rome, type a note. If I happen to think of a tag that it could reference something that I've already done work on, I'll either hashtag it or put brackets around it right there, move on, come back to it later. I do have to say I, I, I still set myself up in the discipline of I spend my Fridays reviewing what I've done, what I've written in there. Because occasionally I will find secondary and tertiary connections that I wouldn't have planned on or, or they hadn't anticipated. Also, my thinking since then, after a few days, might have come up with some new connections or new ideas. But also, it's just a way to clean up because I don't want it to be. I, it can't just be a dumping ground for my thinking. I want to. I want it to have intent. That's probably a key part. It reminds me of this old WordPress plugin. I, I I've never spooled up a WordPress site myself, but I've seen it many times visiting blogs where at the end of a, an article, it'll be like related articles. And to me, that's what's so interesting about these things and like the use of AI, right? Which is it's finding correlations in, in this case between photographs. You could search for dog in your camera roll. And it's going to show you every picture that it can identify with a dog in it. But But that's like these relations that are a constantly be updated database behind the scenes that I never have to see is really, really key because like you can go through at the end of the week and you can make connections that you didn't see at the time of capture and the computer can be doing that too. And even show you things that you took notes on five years ago that might relate like that to me is pretty exciting because then it starts to really your brain, your second brain is, is a timeline, right? It's exactly. It, and it's so yeah. It's it like he has this Gordon has this other article about writing notes to your future self. I think that that was a fascinating article because it was it was you, thinking about writing notes now as a conversation with your future self is a fascinating idea and that and that to me is where you actually can unlock the power of compute to to start to draw some of those connections because it is so hard. Like I've I don't know if you saw this but I'm I'm taking notes in a paper notebook. <laughs> and because I don't want you to hear my keyboard clacking away as I'm as we're having this conversation. And I can't go. It's so hard to go back through that and and pull those pieces out later. And that's, to me, the biggest downside of it. I could never trust that I would have the right notepad with me, that I would go back and make those connections. Yeah, this one and lives on all, my desk, right? And so therefore, right. it's bifurcated from all the other contexts in which I take notes. Yeah. Whereas I have the same note-taking apps on every device mm -hmm. I possibly have. And it feels... I like I'm missing something if I don't have access to one of those. And I, I would say, uh, so I've invested for at least the last year in putting things into that. I also use, uh, I use Readwise with, with my Kindle. So I take notes in a Kindle, which then syncs all that through Readwise directly into my Rome, uh, my, uh, my Rome notes, which then means I have access to all the notes and comments that I've made on books as I've been reading them. So to your point, like investing in your future self, here's something I want to get access to. So what was really beneficial for me was when I was going through the ideas of what I wanted to present at the AEC Tech Conference a few weeks ago, 
it was easy. I started typing topics and putting hashtags and brackets around things. Just list out, these are the things I'm interested in talking about. And boom, all of my backlinks of everything that I've referenced on those topics became available to me, including quotations and ideas. And I started to assemble because it was things I had thought about and worked with. But while I did that, I invested more energy in doing more thinking about some of these and kept looking, which then pushed right back in. So the act of generating a presentation also reinvested new ideas into it. And what I what I start to wonder then, and, and I haven't really gone too far in my thinking about this, is if I start to look at this from a, a design perspective, how we progress architectural projects, we use so much content, first of all, to put together our Revit models, right? And that content, it, there's all sorts of things, not just the actual raw Revit content itself, but sometimes we'll reference other projects, we'll look at other projects. So if there are opportunities, for example, it for it to identify some similarities between what you're doing and some past work, that sort of stuff is easy to do. You could look at, um, you know, it would identify that you're putting together a convention center and a convention center has certain programmatic relationships between different parts. So if it builds a graph network of adjacencies and program types and reference projects to look up, you're what you're doing is hopefully if those re- original projects were structured nicely in the model, you're investing in your future self. You've now been able to go back to that entire history of what you've done and reference that information. There's no reason why we that that sort of system could not be built. Now, it would be ideal if it was able to not just look at your own practice, but to actually look at the repository of architecture as a as a as a more general field would be great. We don't have that sort of repository, and that gets into the whole category of uh, you know all of us architects reinventing the same wheels and fighting over the same things again without sharing knowledge with each other because we think it's our own proprietary IP. That's a whole other thread. But I'd be really interested in this idea of. Um, and this goes back to the the Doug Ungombart concept of of the computer as a as an as a proper assistant, as a partner, as someone who uh, as something that is able to go through and provide you with relevant information at the right time, not unobtrusively, but provide you with that information and is able to look through the past history of things that you've done to give you in new insights on your project and then project forward what possibilities might come. Um not necessarily automate everything because this is where you get into the space of where, you know, so Richard Sennett in his book, The Craftsman, talks a lot about the importance of really understanding the tools that you work with and the sort of resistances that they have and their capabilities such that you all, you actually understand the problem better. So by working with that tool and working with the problem, you actually have a better um, understanding of, of how to uh, resolve issues around that problem or how to work with that kind of creative object. When everything becomes too easy and too automated and too simple, you remain disconnected. You have no connection to the problem itself and uh, and you're not going to dig in the same sort of way. So I'm not I'm not saying we should intentionally make our problems hard to or our software hard to use. That's not what I mean. But there is an importance to not disconnecting ourselves from an understanding of what the architectural problem is or the modeling problem or the design problem or you know the 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 problem of how we design space for people we need to have that relevance there so i i hesitate from too much automation in that space but i do very much like the the advisor the did you know this is related to this i'm not saying clippy in the bottom right hand corner saying it looks like you're designing a tower 
would you like to add a core? Uh, that's not quite what I mean, but maybe a little right. bit. Well, I think there's the, there's the version we have because the thing you're talking about that we have right now is called the internet that everybody's kind of contributing to. And we have Google, which kind of is a layer across the internet to find the things that you're looking for. And unfortunately, it's been gamified with advertising and distractions and all these. It's hard to actually find what you're looking for because of all the noise and the lack of quote unquote structure to all of this stuff, because we're not all tagging things the same way. Not everybody's as good as you at using keywords as other people. And so it becomes kind of a, you know, the problem of search is a big one. What I'm thinking of when you're talking about all this, as far as the computer being an augmentation tool, is the Star Trek computer. That It's one computer that is inhabited in the ship, but populated by everybody in the ship and everybody that came before the ship. And it's this one place, this one repository, which for us is the internet, right? But for there, it's very specific and purpose-built. It's all of the knowledge ever captured in one place, and you just simply ask it what you're looking for. And it provides it. I think that, to me, that that is kind of an interesting thing. Like you said, it's been around for, for 50, 60 years. These ideas are not new, but we haven't built that perfect version of it. And let alone globally, but just even in our own companies. And I think that, that the things that you're talking about are basically what Ian says at Hypar, right? Like, stop starting with a blank page. You've got all of this stuff, this experience, these assets built up over time and yet we still start at a blank page because it is difficult to go back to that last convention center project even though that data does exist and pull out those adjacencies and use that as a starting point because everything is kind of still hard-coded it's it's not very malleable it's not very flexible it's hard to copy and paste that from the old project into the new one and you might not want to do that anyway right so there's a lot of constraints working around this this idea still I think there's an assumption that, you know, architecture often does start with the blank page because you explore a, pro- a solution by designing or you explore a problem by designing solutions. The first thing you do is design and it's missing out on the kind of fundamental aspects and importance of research that could come at the front end of that to truly understand the problems, truly understand what had actually come before. The discovery phase, right? <laughs> That's what yeah. I mean, you yeah. do have things like precedent studies and all that kind of stuff, but we don't have our own knowledge readily available to us. I, I've been having a lot of conversations within our practice about trying to make sure that uh, we are keeping some of the ideas and some of the, the data associated with our models as relevant as possible for as long as we can to invest in our future selves. And some of this is, is thinking purely from an operational perspective. Um, how well did this project you know, uh, complete its drawing sets? you know, how well did it, how well did it operate in terms of its fees and its staffing and what we produce so that we could, you know, start looking to opportunities to kind of use predictive, you know, predictive analytics to start looking at uh, how much do we, you know, bid for on this project? What are we putting in for our fees? How do we think we want to resource this project? So we can look at relevant past studies from an operational perspective. And this is one space where I think, it's really been interesting to see people involved in design technology starting to look into the broader applications to the operations of an entire firm. In fact, maybe that's a little bit of where I think there's been dissatisfaction from people in our field with the traditional architecture practice, because we see there's tremendous opportunities to remake the operations of an architecture practice. And perhaps we're, we're hitting 
barriers, right? Because um, it's a, it can be the, the traditional structures of an architectural business can be quite conservative that way. However, what I'm saying with this is that um, it's been interesting to see what people are able to take from those past projects. And we're wanting to use that data to not just inform from an operational perspective, to look at our past performance, to predict future performance, but also to think about how it can provide more information on our projects. So at a basic level, I'm going to use this particular kind of material in my project. What's every project that we've had in the company that has used this material? That is super easy to do, but it could be very informative. In fact, it might even connect me with people who drew the details and I can ask some questions about, well, why did you do it this way? What's important about that? In my talk about past performance, you know, we know, for example, that this particular material tended to fail after five to 10 years, or it might point out uh, more you know, lower carbon alternatives. Sure, you might want to use this, but we've been typically replacing it with this. That's just materials. We can go point by point through every aspect of the architectural uh, design problem space and think about what those opportunities are to learn from our past projects. And I, we're really working on what it is we need to do and the ideas behind that to leverage that information. But in the end, we, uh, no matter how much of that data we gather, we actually still have to change some of the initial thinking in the ways in which our projects are established and kick off. In or- and that's a, that's a cultural issue. That's not a technology issue. Yeah. I, I mean, some of the biggest battles that have been fought in this arena are regarding the quality of that data that's captured, right? Time cards, timesheets is a perfect example. This industry likes to hide its hours because- Less hours equals more profit. And that is like a gamified version of this system. Yeah, I really worked 80 hours this week, but I'm only putting down 40 because that's what I got paid for anyway. But then that is garbage data in, and therefore it is difficult to predict a future performance based on fiction. And and so you have to kind of have these operations level conversations and buy-in from everybody to say like, no, we actually want to see how we're doing so that we can do it better the next time and not just gamify today. We have to be looking down the long road. We have to be playing this as a long game if we want to be around at the long game. Because if we're just racing to the bottom with this and trying to do less and less and less, there's not there's actually no clear path forward to a better tomorrow with that kind of a model. It'll always keep going to what's cheaper, what's faster. We when this whole conversation comes up about do you, do you record 100% of the hours? The point you just made, you can't actually understand a pro- whether a project has performed well or not, unless you're accounting for all the quote unquote assets that go into the creation of that project, um, the number of staff and the hours that they've spent on it and the product that they actually created. As soon as you remove one of those variables, you're, it's garbage information. There's no way you can understand whether a project's performing. And people are happy with that. I, I want to pause right there because there are people who are happy with that because their incentive is based on that, right? So you have to redesign the incentive system as well in this in this overall operations arena. It but what if, it what it does what it does though is it suggests that then in a way there the thing that's of low value is the people at that point. The people who are doing the work. If you were basically saying that your hours are unimportant so I can show good numbers, then you're not valuing the people that are in your project. And arguably, you're suggesting they are interchangeable bodies and seats in front of a computer. And that's just not that's uh, it is, you know, not that we're running into that issue right now, but 
Um, it is one of the continual conversations that come up. It came up at our Ford Festival over the last few weeks. A lot of the conversations about investing in the people. We, you know, we should be spending. Sorry, I'll stop for a second. There are, there are also that same group of people that also don't want to invest time in training. They don't want to build up communities. They don't want to build up um, new processes and, for, and to learn from past projects because it's just as easy. It's re- it'd be better to burn people out than it is to burn money on on them, you know, on on paying out proper salaries for that. So I guess that's a problem of a lot of our profession is it's not really caring enough about its people. And it's something that's absolutely having to change. And and if it, one really good thing that's come out of, I would say, the pandemic is a strong recognition of the importance of work-life balance and investment in mental health and in the people, and that we need to be uh, focusing a lot more on that. And it needs to be arguably the biggest priority. This has been we, we had a, a question that came up in our a survey that went out and a whole debate around this at the Ford Festival. And there's a question, which is the most important thing, the projects, the clients, or our staff? Mm-hmm. And what I was really glad to see was that staff was continually coming out on the higher end. There was still a lot of recognition of the importance of our projects and our clients, but the general view was a proper investment in staff will turn any project into a successful project and will help make any client happy. But the starting point has to be in the investment in the staff and treating them well, giving them opportunities, empowering them, giving them career paths, paying them properly, giving them time off, all that sort of stuff. And when you do that, then you open up tremendous opportunities for both your projects and your clients. So um, I think this has been a reckoning for our industry, and I hope it continues to go this sort of direction, is a, is a recognition of what is actually possible when we're really in, treating staff as if they are the most important thing, rather than just keeping the fees high and the numbers low in terms of, of uh, the, the hours that we actually bill for. Yeah. Did you see the monograph study that was they published, monograph, um, the website, monograph.com? They, they published a, or did a study of I think it was 250-ish individuals in the architectural industry, and findings were 97% uh, people in the, in the, were suffering from burnout. And so while the pandemic, I think, to your point, has shown the need for balance, it isn't necessarily enabling that unless people are, I don't know, they have the agency to do so. So if if 97% of people are, and, and specifically because of overwork, that was the actual indicator that, that they were, I wonder if they're reporting those hours, by the way, um, <laughs> speaking of, of our conversation here. But I mean, it, it is a very real, it's a very real problem. And what's interesting to me is that that treatment is happening uh, in the face of companies saying people are our most important asset and also you know, the end of the year is coming. We've got deadlines. You can't, can't take time off. You can't use your, use the PTO that we're going to take away at the end of the year because we don't, we can't afford to pay everybody out if they were to quit. And there's all these firms that are trying to hire people. Like it is an employee's kind of position right now of, of power to move around. So the idea of retention in a global firm like yourselves, is this by doing things like the forward festival, by providing training, by, thinking about the problem in the way that you're thinking about it with how do we use these tools to our personal and people benefit, I should say is probably a better way to say it. Like, is that kind of 
the ballpark that you guys are operating in at Woods Bagot and use in, in the technology department? Well, we're trying. We're, you know, we make mistakes like everybody else, but we're definitely trying. I think one of the key things that came out of the Ford Festival was that we can't just talk about this. We actually have to deliver on it. So, you know, literally starting the next day, our CEO emailed the whole company and listed out like top five priorities. This is what we're doing over the next few months. And you will see this actually happen. And you need to hold me accountable is basically what he was saying. And this came from all the leadership of the company. We need to hold each other accountable and to, to really push for a lot more transparency in the business. I would say that my my primary focus from a technology perspective has been, again, you know, I'm not saying automation is necessarily a bad thing um, because we want to remove the things that people don't like to keep doing that they're doing over and over again. You know, the simplest one in the world, print automation. Someone's sitting down and managing a print for four and a half hours for a big set. That's a ridiculous amount of waste of time. And they're probably not printing paper. (laughs) Right. Yes. It's just creation of PDFs, but there's just so many additional manual steps that they're having to go through for these sort of things. I'd rather that they just show up to work on a Monday morning and they've got them sitting in a folder and nobody's had to do anything and it happens every Monday. So there's definitely some benefits on that. But the biggest part has been user experience. What good experience can we give you to both remove some of the drudgery of your work, but also give you some new insights and idea like opportunities for ideas to fire in your head, some value to the work that you do. So it needs to be a joyful experience. We need to give you everything that, you know, we, we need to, to focus primarily on what is your end user experience. And by, you know, by doing that down the line as a business, we benefit from the efficiencies and the new ideas and things that pop up from that, right? No one's saying that there isn't going to be more profits and more, more value that's provided from the things that we that were produced in there. But really, the focus is on making sure that the staff themselves are actually enjoying the tools that they use and they have a positive experience and they're easy to get into. They can find the help that they need to. We're currently redoing our entire wiki focused upon what is the quickest and simplest and easiest way for people to answer the questions. We're, we're trying to bring some of our systems and the standards and tools and not just embed them, but but kind of bring them in a little bit on the side of the work that people are doing to advise them to not make it a separate process where they have to go through and do this kind of drawing set checklist. It's a separate, but instead let's infuse it with the existing workflows. Let's make the user experience again, as seamless and as um, uh, synthesized as possible. I, I think that it's something that I think traditionally design technology teams have not necessarily been as good at the kind of, business bottom line aspects around efficiency and automation have usually overtaken it without an understanding of user experience as being a dimension of that. And I think that's where we've been really focusing a lot of our efforts. It's also been a big part of the culture that we've been pushing in the practice. So we we just recently have relaunched our, our design computation community in the company. And we're trying to build a lot more of the ideas around computation into the language of the practice and to not just build tools that we hand out to people, but to teach them how they were built and to teach them the ideas behind them and to teach them to go even further, how to hack this, how to extend it, how to do more with it. This is where I kind of go back and think about, I I think it's uh, Polanyi's paradox, which was, you know more than you can tell. 
So it's very difficult for us to embody kind of tacit knowledge into tools, to build these mega tools that answer everything for people. It's incredibly difficult to do that. And the moment you try to do it, you're going to have 10 designers on the on side go, well, that's not how I work or think, and then gone, right? That's not the kind of uh, computer as an assistant sort of a thing. That's not the second brain. That's none of that stuff. So what we've been really focusing on is that, yes, there are some repetitive tasks that everybody does in a very similar way. Sure, that's the case. But really, we're going to get a lot more value out of teaching and empowering people to approach things in a computational thinking manner, to try to learn how to build their own tools, their own little widgets and things to solve problems. They don't have to be perfect pieces of software. They can just solve a problem, right? And they only have to solve it once necessarily. They don't have to keep solving it over and over. Yeah, exactly. Now, this is not to say that some of these don't elevate up the chain and become some repeatable tool that we deploy. And we have software developers on on the team and people in the whole community is intended to communicate with each other. Hey, I built this little widget that does this. Oh, I'm interested in that. Let's work on it together. Well, we've got a whole Bitbucket or GitHub site where they can share. We've got Teams channels. They're going to collaborate. They're going to present it. And then at some point, you know, someone like uh, Andrea from my team might look at it and go, actually, there's a little bit of code I can inject into that that will make it go twice as fast. And let's just change some of these terms a little bit over here so it's more generalized. And then it gets deployed as a plugin through the rest of the practice. So there are absolutely those opportunities to elevate things up, but it doesn't have to be the path for everything. I would like to teach people how to build their own systems, their own tools, stuff that I've been doing since the early to mid 2000s in the early days of computation. I'd, that was really empowering for me in my thinking, in my career, and in my opportunities of what I could do on projects. And it basically always put me in a position of thinking there's, there's always a way to solve it. There's always going to be a solution. I'm not limited by the software that's installed on my computer. I can always find a way around this. And you give them that empowerment. And it's amazing the sort of things you can get out of them. So we're really focusing a lot on building these clusters around different ideas within this computation group, getting people to share projects with no obligation that it's actually an architecture project. They could be, I don't know, doing 3D printing. They could be um, doing any sort of projects on their own. It could be just generative art and they're having fun on that. It's just to get the neurons firing in their brain that creatively and in an enjoyable capacity where they can learn and have fun and share ideas with each other. And then we get the secondary benefit of that new fired brain also happens to be working on our projects too. Let's take a short break from the conversation to talk about this episode's sponsor. Enscape is a leading real-time rendering and virtual reality tool for the global AEC market. It plugs directly into your modeling software, giving you an integrated design and visualization process. With Enscape, you can render in real time and walk stakeholders through your rendered model with incredible ease. Now buildings can be experienced long before they're built. And I have to add here that it's fun to use. Seriously, you cannot underestimate this. It's what makes this tool so amazing. This is something that most CAD and rendering programs can't claim. It democratizes your ability to create beautiful renderings at any time during the design process and use it as a tool to make valuable decisions during design. And as my friend Clifton Harness of TestFit says, it's one of the few well-established companies open to innovating in AEC. And you can see the outcome of this where his company recently showed off how they were able to take advantage of the new Enscape SDK to incorporate the real-time renderer 
with TestFit. More than 200,000 unique monthly users from over 150 countries use Enscape to envision better designs. Don't be left out. To learn more or sign up for a free 14-day trial, visit enscape3d.com slash trxl today. That's enscape3d.com slash trxl. I had the pleasure of speaking with Boris and Alex over at ArcIT, and one of the threads of conversation that we had that I think we can all kind of relate to is that a lot of IT providers rely on you to be too much of an expert in this stuff, and they don't really understand the technology that makes your business work. And I think one thing that makes ArcIT a little bit different in that regard is that they understand the architecture and engineering space. And that's why I really felt like they're a great fit for this audience. So as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills, even this morning, trying to resolve a domain name issue not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms, and their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack, and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions, That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly, and enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. And again, this is something that I love about ArcIT is that they're being proactive. They're not waiting for the fires to come up. They're helping you plan for your future. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, Speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions, I think, across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc-like architecture in the middle, and click Work With Us. And now let's get back to our conversation. I'm wondering from an insight perspective, how do you get a window into the the inner workings of a day-to-day for, for a team member, right? Because what you're talking about is user experience. And I think what I've seen a lot in architectural firms, and it probably is not just limited architecture, but there's a certain level of disconnection by leadership, by people who do the work versus the people who, who maybe do the strategy or, or focus on various levels of the business. So you you seem like you're really have a lot of insight into I, I almost want to just go put this in the empathy column, right? Which is how what is the actual day to day like for our people and how can we make it better? And and you happen to do that 
probably, you know, but 90% of the time with technology, <laughs> but you seem very connected in that way. And so I'm wondering like how, obviously it's intentional on your behalf, but, but how do you do that? And what can you do? What can you say here that would encourage other leadership to do that? Because it is so important to be connected to the people who are actually using the tools to deliver the projects for the clients to make the business continue. Like there's all of this stuff is interconnected, like you're talking about. And, and you've got, I, I, I like what I hear from you as far as having that connection with people and implementing things that make their day-to-day better. So, I mean, some of this comes from the, the fact that I was them for quite a while. Um, I was one of those people working all the long hours that everybody did. I also was heavily involved in design computation through the mid 2000s into early 2010s and ran into the same barriers of career opportunities that a lot of them did. In fact, I I left the previous practice because I, I hit a dead end from a career perspective. So when I see what they're doing, it's not to say that their life is exactly the same as mine, uh, you know, but I see some similarities and I see some struggles and I know what it turned into for me, which was I, I quit that job and moved to where I am now, where now my primary job is to focus on technology and, and user experience that side. So that's one dimension of it. There's a few things that come to mind for me in lean manufacturing. There's the idea of the Gemba walk. Uh, which the Gemba walk when it comes out of what was originally the Toyota production system, which is you you have as a leader, you have to understand enough about what's going on with the systems that they would walk the floor. They walk the factory floor, watch people actually do their jobs and think about what that means. But in addition to that, to listen to those people, what are they running into? Do they have ideas of what could improve this system? They're the ones on the line. They know exactly what's happening there. Don't come in thinking that you've got all the answers, right? So there's got to be those conversations with people. Now, I run into a bit of a difficulty that at Woods Baggett, I work for one of the smaller studios or less than 50 people. And you're global. So you've got offices everywhere. Yeah. So that window into has got to be. My my window's a little on the smaller side. And it's also, I would say, a you know, it's a Western culture, North American culture aspect of it, which is different than what I run into from Shanghai to Dubai to Adelaide, Australia to Sydney, right? So there's there's differences in every every one of these cases. I do, however, get to sit on on video conferences and presentations by those other groups. That's a portion of it, but still not the same. One of the big things that I'm I'm trying to do to make up for some of those things that I don't get by seeing outside of my own individual studio is try to build up communities where we do share this information. So there's there's three things that uh, I, w- I was reading uh, Daniel Coyle's Culture Code uh, about a year or so ago when it came out, and it brings up three specific things that are key to building up the culture in a community. One is building safety, and this is something that has been huge for me. I need to be that person that any of these people feel safe talking to because often they're being critical of their studio, maybe their leader, their design leader they work under, or a principal or a colleague, or the operations team. They need to feel comfortable being critical of me because I I make decisions and I want them to feel comfortable that they can say, I really don't think this is the case. So I need to make them feel like this is a safe environment. And and one of the ways that I can make them feel it's a safe environment is the second party brings up shared vulnerability. I need to feel comfortable sharing enough about myself that they feel that I can have that empathetic response to what they're saying. 
So this is, we're in a safe place. We're having conversations. I want to hear about what it is you're running into. And I want to hear your ideas of what would go on, what we do after that. The third party brings up is talking about establishing purpose. And that ultimately means we don't want to be in a spot where we're just sharing what's going wrong. And we just sit there and we wallow. And, and yes, we're patting each other on the back and we all have our war stories. You have to have a trajectory. Where are you going after this? What are we doing after this point to make this different? So to establish the purpose of why we're trying to make things better and where we think we want to go and that they are part of that and uh, determining that and making that happen. And they are empowered to help make that happen. So I think a key part of it it just is that because I'm based in this one studio and unfortunately I'm not being able to travel to any of their studios for two years due to COVID, I have to do all this stuff virtually. It's more, it's pretty tiring, especially when you're on a lot of late night calls with Australia and China and other places. I would rather go to the studios. And often when I do go to those studios, sure, I have meetings with people, but I also spend a lot of time just walking the floor, seeing the projects, sitting in on design reviews, knowing where the ultimate goal is that they want to get to, um, taking people out for coffee, drinks, just, just getting to know everybody and letting them talk with me. Building relationship, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think like probably the single most important thing that I can do at Woods Baggett is to be hyper connected and as empathetic as possible to hear what people are doing, because otherwise my decisions that I'm making are out of context of what our real day to day life is. And again, this is not to say I don't get it wrong because I do hear about it when I get it wrong. and I want to hear about it when I get it wrong. I hope everybody knows that. But um, I, I think my My general view is that what I do is not hierarchical. I'm not coming up with my ideas and then infusing them on the rest of the company. In the same way that my job isn't to be the one that uh, runs the innovation group or to come up with all the ideas. Um, That sort of thing doesn't work. It's too much of an other. It's too The hierarchy means that people can dismiss it. They're not interested in. I'm much more interested in the kind of hierarchical, self-organizing, emergent ideas sort of culture that you get, where the the entire point of what I'm trying to do is to foster knowledge sharing and kind of spark creativity through that sort of knowledge sharing. And you can't do that unless you know the people who are involved and the situations that they're in and what they want to do, what their aspirations are. I, I can imagine by creating a culture like that, there's a lot of ideas being generated all the time. And you're asking people to be vulnerable because it's a safe place. They're allowed to do that. You want them. You want to encourage that. How do you say no to people in that way? Because I can imagine a lot of ideas come out that don't fit within the strategy of where you want to go. And so how do you do that? It's a good question. I think the first thing is that we, you know, I have to reiterate back to people that their ideas, even if they are not ones that will be actioned immediately by our company or by our team are still of value that there are other dimensions perhaps outside of them that are helping determine this particular direction. So, you know, some of this about me giving them the inside of the larger system, you know, all of this is like a systems dynamic type of thing. This has to push and this is related to this and all these things are interrelated. So some of this about me giving them some insights into the decision process into the thinking. Why is this important? Uh, why are we going to hold on that for now and move on something else? They have to understand the reasons why that purpose is the purpose that was decided on versus their particular idea that they came up with. The other thing is to just just to say to them, in some of these cases, is to say that, sure, I'm not going to have my team invest energy in building that sort of thing, but let's talk about opportunities for you to try it. 
maybe there's something you can do with this, right? I'm not going to be so top down or, or a gatekeeper that I'm saying you can't go off and learn something from this and do this. It's just saying I'm, you know, we have finite resources and priorities that we've been given. I have to balance the priorities that come from our, our, our strategy board with what I see on the ground. I'm constantly having to see that there's a push and pull between each of these types of things. And sometimes that has to swing the pendulum back and forth within a single year or within a few months between one side and another. I think a key part is just sharing with them what is the decision process, how does the the organization operate, and why we might need to decide on one direction versus another. I think that transparency and honesty in almost every case I can think of is is well respected enough that it people are like, okay, I get it. It's not gonna happen. It in the few cases I can think of over the last few years where that didn't necessarily work, honestly, it's because we did a poor job. The business, some aspect of the business did a poor job with that person that they uh, that they were already burned out to the degree that it wasn't gonna go somewhere. Right. It was just too much. And and I get it. I totally have full respect for their decision to say, nope, I'm going to go off and do this somewhere else then because we made a lot of mistakes before. But the hope is that we're being very honest and transparent about how the decisions are made and what the priorities are and engaging them in helping understanding and determine that process that they respect that, yeah, this is what has to get done. Yeah. My question, I think, is oversimplifying it when just talking about saying no to somebody, but it because obviously it's not like a parent-child relationship, right? These are adults and there's trust and they are responsible for their time and using it effectively. And the best effective use of time could be to come up with, you know, this idea and make it a reality. There's this idea in Creativity Inc. book by Ed Catmull, who CEO of Pixar called, or yeah, Creativity Inc. <laughs> yeah this idea of the brain trust and the brain trust is kind of like an architectural crit on steroids where it's this it's this one kind of identified group and the idea of a crit has always been you know the feedback is there to make the project better or to make the idea stronger better get it back on track i don't know what it is you know it could be anything but very much directed by the people who need the feedback not the other way around that to me is kind of a key component and you know the other factors that you've mentioned come into play a safe place to to do this but but using this function as a tool which take it or leave it like it's advice these people have tons of experience you know they they've they are the quote unquote leaders typically because you know they've they've gotten to that point with experience and skill and there is trust there and you don't have to take what they say and implement it but it's it's feedback designed to make whatever the subject of the conversation have a better outcome. Um, to me, that kind of fits into what you're talking about here with with the approach of creating these communities where this free flow of information and ideas, and you know, one person can have a good idea, another person can come alongside of it and implement something that makes it a great idea, is really kind of an organic great way to get that feedback and and have it be a safe place without a lot of pressure to come up with the best ideas. I think one of my concerns is that historically that model in an architecture practice has had that parent-child relationship. And I know even when I first went into some, you know, in, into architectural practice, it was very much that way. There's a lot of ego involved. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like right. it was definitely that play way in studio, right? You're in front of the firing squad. What's going to happen? What works? What didn't work? You weren't 
taught that this is a safe space where you could get up there and say, well, this is what I'm doing, but I'm struggling here. Like the, I, or I don't know what, like, I don't know what's happening here. I've tried this and I've tried this and, and I, and I could really use a different perspective to do that. You weren't taught to do that. You were taught to get up there and have confidence in what you've done, show that ego and be like, this is, you know, not literally, but this is the best design that could have been possible for this thing. And that same thing happens in an architectural practice too often. I think the idea that you talked about, this idea of the brain trust where you, it's the, the people who are, who are on the receiving end of the critique, even saying receiving the end of the critique feels like parent-child relationship, but on the receiving end are actually the ones in charge. They're asking for assistance. We were in the example, Pixar, this scene is not working well where the emotions aren't being received. Like, what is it we're missing here? There's something that that's not quite right. Now, that's not to say that the people in the critique end might not pick up on something they hadn't seen. But what it is, is there is not a hierarchical relationship. It's a peer relationship. We're here to help each other. And what's also good about it is the same people who are on the other side, maybe then on the peer review of the other project. This is why. One of the things that I appreciated when I was at Grimshaw, and I've seen this at a lot of practices, is sure, there are design principles who are leading the design critique, but they bring in guests from lots of projects. So it's your peers are all working with you as 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 proper peers. We're, we're critiquing each other. We're helping each other out. And you might again get called in to be uh, someone to help critique on someone else's project through. You treat it as an event, as a piece of community, as where we as design thinkers come together to help each other. And I think when you treat a design critique as if it's something that's on the list to do for that week, and it happens in this room under the design leadership of the only people there, you've created a hierarchical relationship that doesn't respect the thinking and the the maturity of the people who have been producing this, this sort of material. I'd rather see it become a cultural event in the studio, something that brings everybody together um, and again, I appreciate this when I was at Grimshaw, the design reviews happened in an open space in the center of the studio. People would walk up. You'd be walking by when you go get to your coffee and you'd hang up for a little, little bit and you'd point and you'd ask a question. You were perfectly welcome to ask a question because we're there together to make the totality of our work better. And I think when we can do those types of things where that's creating the sort of culture of respect that I'd be, I'd be looking for. And I think, you know, the, to speak to your receiving end point, that I think a lot of times I've seen it be avoided because again, once again, kind of this authorship ego takes over and says, I don't want anybody else's ideas because then it threatens my ideas. And so it can, it can actually go both ways. The purpose of this has to be set so that the outcome is better. It's not a, not about the people. It's about the outcome ultimately in service to the users, the clients, right? I think there are other factors that play into that. Like, what does your portfolio end up looking like, right? Like, there there are definitely pieces that kind of complicate things or they fill in the color on that. But to me, that, I think, is something that people have to be very honest about this process and how it, how it can and should work so that it is the most effective. And what I, what I th- think is interesting is that you're coming at this kind of from this technology point of view but it's rooted in practice like you said you you used to be that person and to me that is the most effective way to infuse technology culture in an office because it is empathetic to the user because you've done it before and you can connect it to the 
the goals of the company and its strategy and its operations. But, you know, all of these things are intertwined and you can't just live in your own little silo and dictate from afar how things need to be done because ultimately that does not invest back into the people. We, about five or six years ago, we were continually running into, actually even more than this, like eight years ago now, we were discussing the issues that we have in sharing the design of projects across a a company spread in 15 different studios. How do we know what everybody else is doing? And it, and all we were finding was on our internet, we were getting published final renders, never really an explanation of what it was about no process. Yeah, yeah. There's no discussion about process, no discussion about things in process that are not just the final decision, but what were the five other iterations that were explored at that time, the abandoned ideas, the wealth of abandoned ideas that were out there that for some reason, perfectly logical reasons, we just, they were abandoned. There's a reason why we didn't do them, but that could have been valid bill somebody else. How were, you know, think of all the stuff that we're missing out on by not sharing that information. And then there was a discussion about, okay, well then maybe we should set up these kind of cross studio presentations on a very regular basis. Every week there's a presentation from our studio. This is what's on the boards this is what we're doing. But that started to fall apart because the amount of work that was necessary to produce a presentation, to organize it. And then people tended to filter a lot. They would pre-filter the things that would come out. So we started thinking about um, some of the benefits, uh, uh, the lack of friction associated with social media. And what do we get in that sort of environment? We started to think, okay, well, then we need to have our own in-house Facebook. And I was like, no, 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 not really an in-house Facebook. I was much more interested in something that was uh, that would break down barriers of geography, break down barriers of topics and ideas where any idea could sit in multiple different camps at the same time. So some a topic that somebody would want to post could not just sit in the homepage for our sustainability team. Um, and you'd have to choose whether I post to sustainability or to technology, but instead can be in both places and sit in its own project and in its own studio and on somebody's personal page at the same time. So we started thinking about how we could network ideas. Cause I, 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 I kept talking about this idea that this concept that ideas want to be promiscuous. They want to connect with everything. They want everybody to have access to it. Like that's, it's it's almost like evolutionary. It's genetic. It wants to connect up as much as possible. So let's let it happen. So we built um, a system called DI Portal, and DI stands for Design Intelligence. And what it is, it's it's kind of like a, a cross between Instagram and Pinterest in a way, in house, where it's as simple as possible for somebody to just post an image, a file, or anything that they've been producing um, over the course of uh, uh, over the course of the last day. In fact, in some cases, we we started, we didn't get too far with it. We started to build tools that would build it into the screenshot application of a Windows machine. Basically, just control, screenshot it, type a note, boom, gets posted in my project. We're still looking at building connectors into Rhino and Revit where to take a screenshot of what you're currently doing. The point is reduce all friction, get things in there. Um, it works on your phone. I could be out at a job site, take a photograph of something, tag my project. It goes into the project queue. People can comment. They can then, in the comment, they can tag other communities. So now all of a sudden, an idea can connect into eight different places. So Network effect. Yeah. Right. Like So there was a, a post for our Melbourne Connect project where there's uh, there's uh, uh, a bunch of work that's done in Timber on it. I'm thinking, I'm thinking the right project, I think. And originally, it was just posted to the project into that studio. I happened to see it because I follow those communities. And I then tagged our green team. 
which then someone else tagged the technology team because there was an approach that they did in Revit that was of interest. So then somebody who doesn't follow the Melbourne Studio or that project sees it on the green team page because they follow the green team. So the whole thing was centered around the idea of how can we create a great user experience for people to share ideas as much as possible and to make it very informal and as fun as possible. You can like things, you can save things into your own uh, boards if you want to hold on to it yourself, make it so that people can kind of collect ideas together, uh, search by hashtags, all that sort of stuff. Um, and we're, you know, we've, I think we're up at 50 or 60,000 posts on the thing over the last number of years. Um, a lot of material that goes in there. We then built uh, a few years ago, used Power BI to build a, a, a kind of a force network diagram what were the major ideas that were popping up and bubbling? It was really interesting to see that. Who were the That's huge for a practice. Right. And also like one of the key things I really like is uh, who were the most networked people? You know, who are the people who, when they posted other people liked or commented, or they also commented and liked. Um, interestingly, but many years ago, and actually this was the case for up until about a year and a half ago, the most networked person that worked for us for quite a few years was someone you've had on the podcast who used to work for us, which was Brian Ringley, because he posted like crazy on the system and and connected in with lots of people. And it was amazing because it really drove that hyper networked idea together that we were a community of people. And it really started to connect people from studio, studio, studio. So while we can't have people walk into design reviews that are in the Sydney studio and you're running a design review in Hong Kong, we can see them post material that's in progress. Hey, I did this sketch. Here's a markup. We've actually been looking at connecting our digital design reviews in Miro directly up to it so that then when a design review happens, someone can go and take a look at the board that was built. So there's a lot of stuff like that that we can start to do. Um, that we're thinking about, again, all about connecting people and ideas up to each other um, as much as possible. So this takes us all the way back to the beginning, talking about note taking. <laughs> this this is how do you surface information and expose it in a very interconnected, but you could have never planned it out ahead of time kind of a way. And And it makes me think of, actually funny enough, it makes me think of file systems, right? Like the fi- kids today, like I have four teenagers, they, they don't know what a folder is. Like there's just, there's just stuff and it's, and it's wherever it is. And how do you find it? Uh, like you go into the photos app and you type dog, right? Like that really is how you find stuff. That's how you surface this information nowadays versus the way that we were brought up to be very organized and structure this stuff. But, but the downside is how do you find it? Where is the one place that that piece of data should live well the, the truth of the matter like you said it, it's actually eight places right it's not one place so this whole idea of surfacing information and making it easy removing all the friction these to me are the types of topics that leadership should be talking about inside of aec because we're talking about i don't know how old is woods baggett i mean it's it's 100 plus years old right 100, so, 160 years old it's been yeah. the 1860s in adelaide actually so it's wow. uh that's a lot of baggage, really old. my friend. Like, like <laughs> there, there's a lot of old habits that have to die right. hard, especially when you start thinking about how do you connect design studios around the world to have an awareness and to be able to plug in and and augment ideas um, to make projects better and to build people up and to advance their careers and professional development. All these things, like this, is the job of leadership today inside of architectural firms and 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 beyond. 
Yeah, I, th- I, I totally agree. And it's, um, it is difficult to get people to think about investing the step or two of time to help their future selves or, uh, and this is harder for them to think out, not necessarily their future selves, but future others. Yes. Exactly. Uh, right. So unless yeah. they start to see the return on investment to themselves, they're like, well, why would I put this information in there? So we do need to give them that ROI, not just in terms of time save, but also what new ideas, new new links that were generated. Um, I've seen this from my my work in, in Rome and other tools where the, uh, sure, I make explicit links, but the implicit links that pop up, the backlinks is like, this is related to this. Like, oh, Wow. Yes, actually, that's great. Um, And some of that I get by I'm one of those people that tends to read more than one nonfiction book at a time because I start connecting things with each other. It can be fun that way. But it's like it's great to be able to explore that space to come up with those ideas and to find those sort of links and have them presented to you. But we don't really get that within the design practice right now. I would love this idea that this not I don't know, this might be an absolutely horrible user experience. But just thinking off the off the cuff with this is that as you're designing something, this whole repository of stuff that we've put into DI portal of all these past ideas and links and connections and people and projects and stuff that we have in there. What, why can't that sort of thing surface up for people and provide them just like, Hey, here's a little bit of a nudge a reference for you to look at. We as a profession are not always the best at constantly keeping that, that research muscle activated while we're working. We'll do our research stage and then we'll just trudge on through, come up with a solution. And there needs to be this constant feedback and nurturing of that garden. I, I think it's even one of the terms that keeps coming up, the, the nurturing of the garden of your brain and, and the ideas they're having. You have to keep tending to that. And it's an interesting problem for people specifically in Technology and architecture is what can we do to help nurture that garden, whether structures we can put in place, whether tools that we can put in place to give people what they need to help make that sort of thing actually happen. We don't think about it that way. But what we're really doing in the end is we are building an augmented thinking system or augmented design system for people. We are augmenting their brains. That's exactly where we're going. And we have to understand enough about how their brains are thinking and what actually it is that they're looking for, uh, for us to build our tools. That's the end game point of it. I mean, a few steps removed is all the automation and visualization and analysis tools. Sure. But in the end, we are augmenting their brain. And I think we we have to think about it from that perspective. Yeah, I, I, the this whole concept of doing it for the benefit of others and not just you, like this fits into the timesheet issue. You, you might be trying to look good now, but it's not benefiting the bigger organization yeah. later. Yeah. Um, thinking about these tools and how they could manifest and change and get better over time for other people. I mean, there's there's the information and surfacing that so that the next project will benefit from it. It's all it's all connected. So, I think this sounds like a great place to wrap it up, Shane. I really appreciate you spending the time. This has been a, a really fun conversation. Yeah, I th- thank you so much for having me on the call. I really appreciate it. I would invite you now if you could share where people could follow along what you guys are doing at Woods Bagot and you personally. I know you're uh, you, you do a lot of speaking at conferences, and uh, I'll put a link to your most recent one in the show notes as well. But where can people follow along with what you guys are up to and what you're up to? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, our website's actually quite good for this stuff. Your website's um, I'm, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty impressed with what, what what our team has been doing and the engagement that we have. So many people in putting content together for it. So our website is quite good. 
Our Instagram accounts are probably the best. Instagram and LinkedIn are probably the best places to see the current work. I mean, stuff's on Twitter as well, but I find that for myself, from the communities that I engage with, the technology communities I engage with are all on Twitter. So if you want to talk to me about tech and things that I do on tech, it's on Twitter. My Instagram, I mostly follow people in art, architecture, and design. The the visual arts is is in music is where I spend most of my time there. But you can, on Twitter, I'm just on Shane Berger. Uh, so burger with the with the you just like the food so you can easily find me there and then uh in terms of the work that we're doing yeah i think our office website as well as our instagram account the i'm going to be investing quite a bit of energy in some of the stories i talked about here some of the previous conferences and then specifically how some of this manifests in our work how we work with our clients how we how our staff work all these kinds of things in a whole new section of our website coming up probably in january and february so Keep an eye out. I'll probably repost it on LinkedIn and Twitter and places when it comes up. But I'm hoping to have a lot more good stories to put in there, too. Awesome. I, I, I can't second all of that enough. There's amazing content on the website. And Twitter is the place to be for, for this kind of conversation. To extend it, I think, would be fantastic if people want to engage with with this. Uh, I encourage everyone out there to do that. So, again, Shane, thank you so much for the time and the conversation today. It's been amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank ArcIT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. Thank you to Enscape for their support of this episode. Visit Enscape3D.com slash TRXL today for a free 14-day trial. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out. And of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for eTroxel. Talk to you soon.